Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Shani Reichman, the Acting Director of IPF Atid, which is the Young Professionals Network of Israel Policy Forum. And I'm your other host, Max Webb, the National Organizing Fellow for IPF Atid this year. So this year on Israel Policy Pod, Max and I are going to be hosting several Atid-led episodes focused on the issues that affect the next generation of leaders in the Israel-Palestine space. So for our first mini-series, we decided to discuss one of the most pressing issues of our time, which is climate change, climate security, and how it affects Israelis, Palestinians, and the prospects for a two-state solution. With the UN Climate Conference, the COP26 summit, taking place in Glasgow this week, climate change has been at the top of the agenda for leaders across the world. Particularly in Israel, we've seen Prime Minister Bennett and the new coalition using increasingly pro-climate rhetoric in making environmental commitments to prepare the government for its entrance to the global climate arena. The region has seen a dramatic increase in climate-related issues. From water insecurity to wildfires, the looming nature of climate change is becoming an ever-present threat to the livelihoods of all people who call this region home. This raises a lot of questions for us as an organization committed to a secure future for both Israel and the Palestinians. In this mini-series, we'll be interviewing a number of individuals from civil society, government officials, and regional thought leaders to get the most in-depth understanding of the climate issues that face the region today. We will look at the current situation on the ground and how the growing threat presents both problems and prospects for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Most importantly, we hope to empower our Atidnik community across the globe to take action. Our namesake, Atid, means future, and climate change is something that threatens the future of Israelis, Palestinians, the global Jewish community, and the future of a two-state solution. For the first episode in our climate security mini-series, we spoke to Gidon Bromberg, founder and Israel director of Echo Peace Middle East. Welcome, Gidon. Hey, Gidon, how are you? Wonderful. Thank you for the invitation. Look forward to the conversation. Why don't you tell us all where you're calling in from? So I'm here in in Glasgow. I'm actually part of the official Israeli delegation. Uh, to Glasgow. We're very fortunate that we have a minister, uh, Tamar Zandberg, who for the very first time has allowed a a tremendously large number of civil society activists from Israel to actually be part of the official delegation. And that means that I've had access to all of the plenary sessions and and have been able to meet with some of the high-level officials um, uh, during uh, the sessions and after the sessions and hold really important conversations. How does the size of the Israeli delegation compare to the size that other countries brought? So Israel is the second largest delegation after the United States. Wow, that's, that's really impressive. incredible. It is incredible, and and I think you know there's been a little bit of critique back home in Israel that you know, why is such a large delegation? But the majority of the delegation are actually not government. The majority of the delegation is civil society, it's uh, startups and industry. Um, uh, and I think that's a good thing because I think um, uh, w- what we see is that, you know, that many of the civil society groups and many young people uh, are, are here from Israel and they're being really empowered. They're being incredibly excited about the prospects of, uh, uh, of what Israel has to offer and, of course, to learn more about you know, the challenge that the uh, global crisis uh, presents to the, to the region and to the world. Wow, that is that is so amazing to hear, um, and it's just so awesome that we get to interview from this conference itself. Um, could you elaborate a little bit more on what the tone of the conference is there, and what kind of commitments have you heard from regional leaders during your time in Glasgow? So the the tone is is one of uh, really a combination of fear, fear that that we're not going to meet the challenge on the on the one hand, and you know, when when you add up 
you know, following the second day of the, uh, of the, of the leadership session that's taken place, um, the numbers don't look good. Uh, the, the countries that really need, uh, you know, to uh, commit to zero emissions uh, by 2050 have not come through. And uh, unless we see some dramatic improvements, you know, over these next 10 days and countries reconsidering, you know, Brazil, China, uh, India, um, they, have, they have not committed Russia to zero emissions by 2050. And if they do not commit, then we're not going to reach um, uh, the Paris uh, targets of limiting uh, uh, the climate crisis to, to an additional one and a half degrees. And if we don't limit, if we don't reach that target, then uh, we really risk the security, uh, not only of Israel and the region, but of the world. So, so uh, you know, the bottom line is I, I think there's a lot of trepidation um, that, that although some countries, and I'm, I'm pleased that um, the Israeli prime minister, um, under considerable pressure, um, uh, uh, both from home, from civil society, from the Ministry of the Environment, but also because of the desire that we very clearly see that, that um, this particular government and this prime minister wants to be a global player, wants to show that Israel can contribute uh, to fighting uh, uh, climate change and, and well understands that he won't have legitimacy um, uh, to be part of that family committed to fight climate change if Israel doesn't you know, step up um, its own commitments. And therefore, um, uh, Prime Minister Bennett increased Israel's uh, commitment uh, from 85% uh, uh, zero emissions uh, 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 by 2050 uh, to um, uh, simply to, to zero emissions um, uh, by 2050. Now, that's, that's a good move, but it's also not enough. Um, Israel should do better uh, uh, by 2030. At, at the moment, we're only, um, uh, uh, Israel's only committed to 27% reduction uh, by uh, 2030. Um, uh, most advanced economies are committing to 50% or even 55% uh, 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 emission reductions uh, by the end of this decade. Um, Israel also is still discussing a climate law. And without a really detailed climate law in place that, uh, that really you know, lays out an action plan, um, then this really could just be lip service. And, and certainly, uh, I think, uh, you know, civil society in Israel, and you know, Israel has about a 120 environmental organizations. Um, we're committed to make sure that, that the government um, uh, passes uh, climate legislation with a real action plan that's financed so that uh, uh, Israel can meet that uh, zero emissions by 2050. Wow, that is so interesting. Um, going into a little bit more about these different climate organizations, where does your organization, EcoPeace, fit into this? How did you guys get started? Um, and what kind of work have you been doing um, in Israel, in the territories, and in the region as a whole? So Ecopeace, the story of Ecopeace is a wonderful story because it's a story of optimism. Ecopeace was created at a time of euphoria when we were absolutely confident that peace had broken out. This is back in 1994 
um, uh, following the Israel-Jordan peace treaty and the signing of the Oslo Accords between Israel and the PLO, um, we thought that peace was no longer going to be the problem. And Equipeace was founded on, on out of the concern that, uh, that sustainability um, should uh, be the result of a peace process. And uh, we, you know, we were simply concerned that uh, there was some rhetoric, but there was nothing really behind sustainable development in the different uh, peace treaties uh, or, or the peace treaty between Israel and Jordan or, or and the Oslo Accords. And we were concerned of overdevelopment. So the original rationale uh, of the name Equipeace was, was much more ecology um, and making sure that all of the economic, you know, major economic development plans that were then being proposed um, uh, would not uh, harm um, uh, the environment, to make sure that we were making peace not only between people, but also between people and nature. Very uh, sadly and very quickly, we saw how sour um, uh, the peace process became and how um, uh, you know, uh, negotiations didn't go forward and violence broke out again. And then we had uh, the second intifada. Um, and Equipeace had to reinvent itself, had to uh, uh, consider, well, what would be our roles? Clearly, overdevelopment was no longer taking place. Um, uh, there was, you know, again, uh, animosity, reduced uh, interaction um, uh, uh, between the various parties, and it became a cold peace. Uh, for instance, between Israel and Jordan. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, after thinking deeply, uh, you know, basically from uh, 1998 through to 2001, um, uh, with the Second Intifada, Equipeace reinvented itself and and uh, saw that actually the cooperation amongst Israeli, Palestinian, Jordanian environmentalists that Equipeace represents. Um, uh, the trust that we'd built, the common concern um, over scarce water resources and their utilization and preventing uh, further pollution of those scarce uh, water resources was an example of how we could effectively work together. And therefore, without knowing it, um, at Equipeace, we actually helped invent the concept of environmental peace building before the, you know, the academic term was, was ever coined. Um, and that's what we've been doing for most of the 27 years of our existence. We are the only regional organization that exists in any field. There is simply no other organization that is Israeli, Palestinian, and Jordanian. It's a single board um, of you know, four board members that are Palestinian, four Jordanian board members, and four Israeli board members. Um, I'm the Israeli co-director, but I have my parallel, a Palestinian uh, co-director Nada Majdalani out of our office in Ramallah, uh, a Jordanian co-director Yana Abu Talib out of our office in Amman, um, and and together we're about sixty staff. Every staff person in Equipeace has their parallel in the other office, and we all focus on the transboundary um, environmental issues that we face. Um, Equipeace has also you know developed over the years some very unique programming. Um, about half of our work is focused on bottom-up community-based activities. We developed a, a program back in 2000 called Good Water Neighbors. Um, uh, it was really a play on the term that you know, good fences make good neighbors. Well, we said, no, good water makes good neighbors, not good fences. Good fences keep people apart and help 
stereotypes develop. Um, we try to uh, uh, develop programming and have, and have won some tremendous awards uh, over uh, the programming developed uh, uh, in the Good Water Neighbours program. Um, but it's all about uh, uh, working at the community level. Um, uh, we've developed youth water trustees um, that for the last 20 years um, uh, are bringing together high school kids, Israeli, Palestinian and Jordanian, learning about their water reality, their neighbour's water reality and the interconnectedness of the two, highlighting that working together to solve these transboundary water issues is not doing a favour. You're not working for the other side. On the contrary, this is the only way to advance your own needs and your own self-interest. It just means, however, that because the water body is shared, that we can't solve these issues if we don't work together. And then that speaks to the second half. Um, well, you know, in, in that bottom-up uh, uh, programming, we don't only work in, in schools. We work with community activists. We work with religious leaders. Um, uh, we've developed a young professionals program of university and, uh, and, and young professionals. Um, we've this year launched a Echo Entrepreneurs program, bringing Palestinian, Jordanian, and Israeli sort of clean tech entrepreneurs to think about uh, solutions on the ground. And we have a regional forum, which is um, a level of uh, sort of mid-level decision makers um, uh, from you know, government in particular, but also some academia um, coming together uh, you know, to learn about particularly the climate uh, crisis. The second half of our programming um, is, is more, is more top-down. And that's uh, uh, focused on undertaking joint research. Um, uh, so what's what's unique about the way Ecopieces undertakes its research is that we will always hire experts from the three sides, and we'll generally hire experts that our own governments hire, so that they come with a, a level of legitimacy. But by by bringing experts together, um, we undertake joint fact finding. One of you know the great challenges that we face. In the region is that you know there's a tremendous dispute as to you know what are the facts but if we bring the experts together to do that fact finding together then we come with a, a credible result um, and then no no more no less importantly um, we then have you know Palestinian experts uh, you know bring forth that information to the Palestinian public and to the Palestinian decision makers Israeli experts uh, similarly to the Israeli side and Jordanians to the Jordanian side. So, so we come with, with, with much greater legitimacy because in everything, uh, again, which is unique about uh, Ecopeace, it's Israelis that are speaking to the Israeli public, Palestinians to the Palestinian public, Jordanians to the Jordanians, and together, Israeli, Palestinian, and Jordanian um, uh, uh, members of Ecopeace speaking to the international community. So that 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 pre presents a, a level of power um, uh, uh, within our organization um, you know, to to speak the language uh, of uh, our respective nations and to come with a level of legitimacy um, uh, that that is convincing that that uh, uh, helps defeat um, uh, you know, perhaps the um, uh, uh, the argument or those that um, that, that, that say that we're working for the other side. Um, no, um, we're always highlighting the self-interest 
of uh, each one of our sides. But clearly, our aim is always to see mutual gain across the board, because it's only when mutual gain is achieved then can we advance um, uh, trust and understanding and in the long term peace. That's really wonderful. And you might know that we're also from an organization that was born out of the Oslo process um, that reinvented itself a bit over the years, too. So it, a lot of what you said really resonates. Uh, you spoke a bit about the issue of water control and access in the West Bank and Gaza, which we know is quite pressing and a very divisive issue. Can you share with us a bit about the current state of water access in the territories and how you might see worsening climate conditions impacting the status quo we have right now? So, so water uh, is a critical issue uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean Middle East. We are the most water scarce part of the world. So the water reality on the ground uh, today uh, in the West Bank, for instance, is an intermittent water supply. Uh, where you know Ramallah, for instance, will get uh, water once a week. Hebron uh, uh, and and the southern area like Yatta, a, a city of over a hundred thousand people, um, uh, will get water maybe once every two months in the summertime. Um, uh, you know the, the pipes are there, but the municipality is only able to supply water in such an intermittent fashion. And on every house. Throughout the West Bank and, and Gaza, there are uh, water tanks on the roofs that are uh, being filled when the water is being supplied. That's the day when, for instance, staff will often not be able to come to work uh, because that's the day that you need to do everything related to water. You should do you know, as much washing as needed. That's the day to clean the house. That's the day to, uh, to water the garden or, 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 or fruit trees or you know, sort of you know, other food that, that, that you might be growing um, uh, because then when the water stops flowing and um, then you're dependent on, on whatever's being stored, either on your roof or a cisterns um, under your house. You can always buy more water. No one is dying of thirst. Um, but the cost of, of, uh, of buying a water tanker can be 10 to 20 times the cost of municipal water. And that's expensive. For uh, for most Palestinians in the in the Gaza Strip, the situation is far more uh, serious. Um, where uh, you know, due to uh, several decades of overpumping of that uh, uh, the groundwater underneath Gaza, um, uh, the groundwater has become so saline and also so polluted that over ninety seven percent of the groundwater of Gaza is no longer potable. It's actually a health. Um, risk to drink that water. And people uh, in Gaza, 2 million Palestinians, have basically had to go back to the Middle Ages where they're you know, going to refill jerry cans um, with you know, small quantities of desalinated water um, uh, that they bring back to their homes for cooking and, and drinking purposes. And they'll, only, they'll use the tap water you know, for washing and for showering, and they'll often be left with a layer of salt um, that they feel on their skin because of the high salinity of Gaza water. Gaza is in desperate need of the building of a large desalination plant um, that would uh, supplement um, uh, you know, what's left of Gaza's potable groundwater. Um, so so the, the situation... Um, of water supply throughout the West Bank 
and uh, Gaza could not be more different um, than uh, the situation within Israel, where Israel has extremely high water security, um, where because of Israel's global leadership uh, uh, in the water sector, um, uh, Israel not only has you know 24/7 water, um, uh, but but Israel is the world leader in treating sewage and then reusing it for agriculture. Um, in fact, um, about uh, 500 million cubic meters of water. That's more water than was ever pumped from the Sea of Galilee on an annual basis is today produced, manufactured by treating wastewater. And about half the food in Israel today is grown from treated wastewater. And about 70% of the drinking water, of the domestic water supply, is no longer in Israel a natural water. Um, it's today desalinated uh, water. And Israel is constantly seeking to build uh, additional uh, desalination plants to meet uh, uh, that uh, demand. Um, and, and that really takes us um, to you know, the possibility of, of water and the peace process, uh, because the rationale as to why uh, water was held back as a final status issue, difficult to resolve back in 95 because there was only natural water that would produce winners and losers, is no longer the reality today. Much due to Israel's leadership in the water sector, um, uh, there is no reason why Palestinians could not um, uh, uh, have greater access to a fairer share of natural water to allow them to pump more water from the aquifers desperately needed again because of climate change you know there's a need to pump more deeply because there's less uh, uh, access uh, uh, to water there's less uh, water available and Israel in turn reduce its pumping so that we um, uh, uh, have a sustainable uh, uh, you know, exploitation of that groundwater and simply uh, replace that loss with desalinated water at very competitive prices. You know, the cost of desalination um, 20 years ago was $2 a cubic meter. Today, it's only 40 cents. And that's quite comparable to the cost of pumping natural water because natural water also costs you money. You need to pump it from the ground. It can be very deep. Sometimes it can cost you more than 40 cents. Um, so, so today, and you know, really for the last decade, there's been no reason um, uh, to continue to see water as a final status issue. What has held back um, uh, uh, resolving and improving the water reality in every Palestinian home um, has actually been the paradigm of how uh, the peace process has been negotiated. And the Oslo Accords were negotiated in the paradigm of all or nothing. Either both sides agree on all final status issues including water, or they don't agree on anything and nothing moves forward. And since we haven't been able to agree on all final status issues, at Ecopeace we've highlighted that water issues have actually been held hostage to uh, the failure to move forward on other issues. And there's no reason to continue with that paradigm. And we've been calling on both the government of Israel and the Palestinian Authority, and of course the international community, to change the paradigm. I mean, it's no wonder that the public in Israel and Palestine 
have no faith that, that there's ever going to be peace because the experience of the last 27 years is that nothing has moved forward. Now, we're strongly advocating, we've been advocating since 2012, um, that it's time to rethink of uh, that paradigm, that we, by moving forward on water issues, we will see more water in every Palestinian home, more important than ever because of the climate crisis and the need to build climate resilience um, uh, with no, not a cubic meter of loss of water through Israel because it can be replaced by desalinated water. And in addition, um, uh, uh, by moving forward on the ability of, of Palestinians or really obtaining Palestinian water rights, um, uh, uh, the Palestinians would also take greater responsibility for treating sewage, which at the moment is a problem um, uh, that uh, uh, really pollutes a lot of streams and groundwater on the Palestinian side, but then um, anything that flows west flows into Israel and every stream um, uh, that's cross-border uh, Palestinian-Israeli is full of mostly Palestinian sewage, a little bit of coming also from settlements, um, but another source of animosity. So, you know, the water issue is actually an opportunity today to improve people's livelihoods, to build trust, to show that there is a partner on a final status issue, such as water, um, to see that, that uh, rights can be achieved, and in this case, water rights. Um, uh, but we need to change the paradigm. And, and here, um, I, I think you know, this is our appeal to you know, the membership of the Israel Policy Forum and, and to the whole ATID group that might be listening here. Um, it's important that the Biden administration um, uh, adopts a change in paradigm that we should move forward today on what is uh, perhaps the low-hanging fruit, not because we don't want to move forward on all issues. We've heard that the Biden administration is saying that the time is not right, uh, is not ripe um, uh, for a final settlement. Even if, that's the, um, if, even if that's accepted, it doesn't mean that we can't move forward, that we, on the contrary, we must move forward on issues that are relatively easy um, uh, uh, to resolve, and water is that issue. Given that there's a new administration in Israel, do you see any change in the political will to make movement on this issue? Because um, I can actually see this appealing to Prime Minister Bennett in a lot of ways, um, given a lot of his rhetoric the past few weeks. Yeah, so so um, we, we think, you know, we're, we're certainly hearing not only from Bennett, um, but also from Gantz, the Minister of Defense, and and, and Lapid, the uh, uh, the Foreign Minister, and clearly uh, from Labour and Meretz, um, that they want to see uh, an improvement uh, of the situation on the ground. And you know, indeed, we're presenting a a roadmap. In, in fact, um, uh, we've had uh, former U.S. Ambassador Daniel Shapiro uh, describe a. A report that Equipeace released last year, uh, calling for a green blue deal, as a roadmap uh, for both climate resilience, but also as a means uh, to keep the two-state solution alive, um, uh, by moving forward on one of the final status issues, being water. Um, uh, there's a direct relationship between you know more water available uh, to improved living standards and uh, improved economic 
reality uh, in the Palestinian territories. And, and you know, Bennett speaks to that and uh, uh, moving forward on, on water uh, would help advance that. Um, there are, though, uh, uh, you know, uh, water engineers in Israel and, you know, the, the, uh, the general public um, does have a sense of animosity of moving forward on anything. And that has to be overcome. And, and you know, we need to continue to educate uh, uh, the public that uh, uh, water security for Palestinians is national security for Israel. Um, that, that this is actually not an issue of, of generosity, that, um, uh, that the current water scarcity, uh, that the likelihood of disease breaking out in Gaza, because you know, people are drinking, if they're drinking the natural, the groundwater, are drinking unhealthy water. And you know, should, you know, we're, we're, we've seen what's happened with COVID. Should uh, uh, other pandemic diseases, cholera, you know, break out in Gaza because you know sewage is not being properly treated, not in not in Gaza and not in the West Bank, the cholera won't just stop, um, uh, you know, in the Palestinian towns and villages. It's carried with people with the sewage streams, um, uh, you know, to Israel. And uh, you know, at Ecopeace, we've highlighted that. Um, in uh, in really changing Israeli government policy, um, uh, you know, uh, back in um, 2014 uh, through to 2016, uh, you know, uh, in one of the earlier wars between Israel and, and Hamas, uh, insufficient uh, electricity and uh, uh, the inability of bringing in cement into Gaza uh, uh, led to uh, massive amounts of sewage. Uh, being released from Gaza into the Mediterranean. At Ecopeace, we highlighted that that sewage, once released into the Mediterranean, doesn't just stop on Gaza beaches, but we obtained, through Israel's Freedom of Information Law, satellite images that show how the sewage is carried naturally upstream to Israeli beaches, you know, to uh, the beaches of Zikim, uh, you know, right next to Gaza, to to Ashkelon and, and even to Ashdod. And more than that, um, uh, we were able to highlight that uh, the two southern desalination plants of Israel in Ashkelon and, and Ashdod are actually at risk. We, we actually were able to, uh, again, through Freedom of Information uh, Law, uh, make public that the Ashkelon desalination plant closes intermittently the Ashkelon desalination plant alone is 15% of Israel's domestic water, and it has to close when there's lots of sewage from Gaza um, uh, in its entry point. Um, and and that, that, that speaks to water security and national security issues on the Israeli side. By making this information public back in you know, 2015 through to, through to 2017, we were able to really change uh, uh, government policy during the Netanyahu period and cement. So, so it took 14 years to complete the building of the first modern sewage treatment plant in Gaza. Um, uh, the second modern sewage treatment plant was built only within four years. And that was due to an understanding that allowing cement to get into Gaza, although it comes with risk, that some of the cement might be stolen by Hamas, 
to build tunnels, but by not allowing any cement means that there can be no sewage treatment in Gaza. And if there's no sewage treatment in Gaza, then um, not only is the pollution impacting the 2 million Palestinians, but the Israeli public is equally at risk and Israeli water security and Israeli national security uh, is at risk. And by highlighting um, that you know, water and the environment have to make us rethink what security is about. Security is not only about military security. Security is about human security. And the human security needs of Israelis are very much dependent also on the ability to guarantee you know, human security needs on the Palestinian side as well. We are one environment. And our message is that although politicians can speak about disengagement on the political level, um, on the environment level, we can never disengage because it's a shared environment. Now, you know, that's science. That's, that's facts on the ground. And our efforts at Ecopeace are all about, you know, forcing politicians to pull their heads out of the sand and accept the reality and, you know, educate the Israeli public. Um, the politicians that speak of disengagement, that we can build, you know, fences and throw away the key, you know, that, that is rubbish. Um, uh, 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 that doesn't reflect the reality of the ground, on the ground, and advancing such policies risk not only the Palestinian public, but also the Israeli public. Yeah, I'm sure you know it as well, Policy Forum. We, t we talk a lot about a two-state solution and, and what that can look like. And I think there's a lot of space for uh, within that um, sharing resources. And, and it's helpful for us to see, you know, what that can actually look like and, and how both societies can sort of work together um, from a policy standpoint also. Um, to kind of share resources and have a better and more effective environment. And um, it's really it's really great to see the the potential there. Definitely. And I, I really want to thank you for explaining this very complicated issue. I did not realize how multifaceted um, the water situation was. I always knew it was a, a huge problem, but to see it in, from all these different lenses is really interesting. Um, and I also, it was cool that at the end, you you threw in a little bit of an optimistic note and the work that you guys are doing is really incredible. Um, and a, one really outstanding moment I noticed from this past year in the region um, was when there were big wildfires in the area and we saw Israeli and Palestinian firefighters working together. And that's a big image of of the optimism that can come out of this really terrible, terrible situation. So I wanted to ask you beyond just water security, looking at all of the different aspects of climate change and the threat from a deteriorating environment, what ways can we bring Israelis and Palestinians together? How can people cooperate more like these joint fire missions that we saw combating wildfires? What are some of the other options out there? So, so at Ecopeace, um, we launched a, uh, a new report calling for a green-blue deal for the Middle East. And it's all about climate solutions. It's highlighting that the climate crisis is not a national issue. It's primarily a regional issue. The climate crisis doesn't hit one particular country. It hits the region as a whole. And for our region, we're a hotspot. Um, you know, while the rest of the world is fearful of a one and a half degree, as I said earlier, we've already experienced an additional two degrees uh, increase in temperature. The Mediterranean Sea, uh, you know, off, off the coast of Tel Aviv, where I live, 
reached 32 degrees Celsius this last summer. That's two degrees higher than ever recorded. So climate, the climate change and the climate crisis is real. While in the United States, you know, I, I know that you know Democrats and Republicans argue as to you know whether the climate crisis is real, and there's, there's a lot of climate denial. In Israel, Palestine, and Jordan, that doesn't exist. If there's one thing that you know the water authorities of all three governments can agree on is that the climate crisis is real, and it's a threat to water security and to the national security of each one of us. What that means is that um, uh, we can't solve the climate crisis alone. So, you know, Israel, relative to the rest of the region, is, is way ahead. I mean, it, it, it's, um, it, it is a world leader uh, on, on uh, water management issues, on manufacturing water, and on, on other you know, high-tech and clean-tech issues that relate to the climate crisis. But if our neighborhood fails, and first and foremost, if you know, the situation continues to deteriorate for Palestinians and Jordanians, um, then, we sh then we can expect increased instability all around us. We've seen what's happened uh, in Syria with the uprising uh, also next door, creating millions of uh, refugees, many would argue, partially climate refugees. One of the underlying causes of the Syrian uprising was the climate crisis, was um, uh, uh, a five-year period of drought where farmers in Syria lost all their live livelihood and moved to towns and, and, and villages where the uprising began because the government failed them in Syria. Um, and of course, that, that has led to you know, close to 2 million refugees in Jordan, further making uh, water instability uh, a reality there too. Um, so the climate crisis requires cooperation. Um, and at Equipeace, we actually see uh, the climate crisis not only from the lens as a threat multiplier, but as a multiplier of opportunities. And in the Green-Blue Deal, we've set out four pillars um, as to how um, uh, we need as a must to be working together. The first is focused on a water energy exchange. You know, to meet um, Israel's climate uh, commitment of 30% of, uh, uh, renewables by 2030 or 100% by 2050, Israel doesn't have the open spaces. Um, you know, when you look on the map, you see the Negev and you think, wow, okay, there's a vast desert area. But actually half the Negev is military training area, and you can't build solar fields where tanks are bringing up so much dust and so forth. The other half of the Negev is mostly declared nature reserves because there's some really precious nature out there. Um, uh, at Ecopis, you know, we uh, uh, completed a study back in 2017 that highlighted that Jordan actually has the comparative advantage in the region to produce large-scale renewable energy because it has vast desert areas in close proximity to the Jordanian public, Palestinian public, and Israeli public. And Jordan is already way ahead of Israel. 20% of Jordan's electricity is currently coming from renewables, so they have lots of good experience. And 
um, uh, uh, our study highlighted that Jordan could be selling um, uh, uh, renewable both through wind but mostly through solar to the Palestinian and Israeli grids um, to power, for, to meet our climate commitments at scale and at prices cheaper that we can produce in Israel. So there's also an economic incentive. No one is doing a favor. In fact, Israel would be able to buy renewable energy at cheaper prices by uh, buying uh, renewable energy from Jordan and at quantities that it can't produce itself. Um, and, uh, and then you know, you know, Israel, but also uh, Gaza being on the Mediterranean coast has the comparative advantage of being able to uh, meet the water challenge that the climate crisis presents. And if we can use solar power from Jordan to desalinate on the Mediterranean and then sell water back to Jordan, then we're able to achieve region-wide water security, region-wide energy security, be an example perhaps to the rest of the world, but no less importantly, for the very first time, each side, Israelis and Palestinians, would be able would have something to sell, being water. Jordanians, rather than just buying water from Israel and buying gas from Israel, for the first time would have something to sell to Israel in renewable energy. And in that way, create healthy interdependencies. Now, we take that uh, lesson from the real-world experience of Europe after World War II, where um, France and Germany, you know, who had experienced also hundreds of years of animosity and warfare, created a coal and steel arrangement where the two most important natural resources of the European continent at that time forced cooperation in the sale and uh, uh, movement of, of those two critical resources. Well, the coal and steel of the Eastern Mediterranean of the Levant that's relevant to this century is harnessing the sun and the sea. And by doing that together, we change the paradigm from a paradigm of disconnect to a paradigm of interconnecting, of being dependent on each other. Now. Um, a second pillar of the Green-Blue Deal is very much focused on biodiversity, a critical issue that the climate crisis is killing at, at, at uh, greater um, uh, uh, percentages than, than we've ever known. Um, the conflict has led to the demise of the River Jordan. About 50% of the biodiversity of that river from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea has been lost. All of the fresh water has been taken. Israel has taken half the water. Syria and Jordan has taken the other half of the water. And what's left in the River Jordan is a trickle, and it's mostly sewerage, agricultural runoff, and saline uh, water. Um, you know, the willow tree, which used to you know, uh, grow on the banks of the River Jordan, um, is basically extinct because the salinity, the pollution is so high that the, the tree can't survive on the banks anymore. Um, uh, as we move forward, and, and you know, we, we've seen the partial implementation of a water energy exchange just in these last weeks, Israel agreed to sell an additional, beyond peace treaty commitments, 
an additional 50 million cubic meters of water to Jordan. That's the largest water sale in the two countries' history um, just two weeks ago. Um, uh, now, looking forward, we should be supplying that water not through pipes like we're currently doing. There's a pipe connecting the Sea of Galilee in Israel with the King Abdullah Canal in Jordan. And that canal made out of cement actually built with USAID, uh, US taxpayers' funds back in the 1970s is a cement canal that carries that water parallel to the Jordan River all the way down to Amman. And then from there, three quarters of the length of the river, it's then pumped up to Jordan for drinking purposes. Well, in a scenario of, of a little bit of greater trust, um, where we, again, need to meet the challenges of, of climate change and, and uh, 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 biodiversity protection, we should be using the natural Jordan River and supplying that water, not through pipes and canals, but investing in removing sewage and using the natural river as the regional water carrier that can supply water not only to Jordanians, but also to Palestinians um, in the Jordan Valley. Um, uh, by rehabilitating the River Jordan, we also create new economic opportunities for Israelis, Palestinians, and Jordanians alike, because this river has to be happens to be holy to half of humanity. You know, this is you know the river of miracles in Jewish tradition, where the Israelites crossed the Promised Land. Um, this is the river where Jesus, in Christian tradition, is baptized, and this is the river where four of the companions to the Prophet Muhammad are buried on the eastern banks. At the moment, the river receives about a million uh, Christian pilgrims every year. An Ecopi study shows that if we clean up the river and allow fresh water, not only do we bring back biodiversity and, and you know, sort of uh, tourism related to uh, ecology, but also to religion and to cultural heritage. And we can very easily you know, increase, um, uh, diversify incomes from just agriculture to tourism and trade um, uh, and, and shared prosperity um, uh, along the Jordan River. So, so our second pillar builds on the water energy exchange and enables us to also uh, 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 rehabilitate uh, the Jordan River. Um, the third chapter of the Green Blue Deal goes back to um, uh, you know, advancing the two-state solution and making sure that you know, we can uh, uh, move forward on water and, and Palestinians obtaining their water rights with Israelis not losing anymore. Um, so uh, that's the third chapter. And the second, and the, sorry, the fourth chapter of the Green Blue Deal is all about education. At Ecopeace, you know, we've been running, as I said earlier, the, the uh, uh, Good Water Neighbors program. Well, over you know, these last um, you know, five, six years, we've heavily also focused on educating young people on uh, uh, water diplomacy issues, on the risks of climate change to uh, water security and to national security. But we're only reaching a limited uh, percentage of our public. Um, we're calling on uh, through the Green Blue Deal that uh, educating on climate security, on the need for cooperation uh, to meet the challenges of climate change be mainstreamed 
in the Israeli education system, in the Palestinian education system, and in the Jordanian education system. While we're doing it at a level through civil society, um, it, you know, this is our opportunity. And you know, as an Israeli, I'm, I call on the government of Israel and the Ministry of Education to uh, to focus on on the climate crisis, not only at the global st uh, stage, and but to focus at the regional stage and to highlight how we're all in the same boat. And if we don't meet that challenge, um, that is so real, we are a hotspot. Um, we risk parts of our region no longer being livable. You know, um, uh, should we fail as a globe, as a global community, uh, to to not meet the Paris commitments, we can expect by the end of the century a further increase in temperatures of four to seven degrees. That means that in the summer months, it becomes dangerous to be outside. It's a a, a health hazard to be working outside, and we can expect our summer. Um, uh, period to expand by 50%. So, you know, if the summer period in Israel is already, you know, five to six months of the year, we can expect the summer period to be around nine months of the year, where heat waves become more and more the common practice and uh, uh, present a real risk to both the very young and the very old, um, even indoors. Um, so, so uh, we have uh, here a great challenge that we'll only be able to meet if we can work together, not as a favor. None of this is doing a favor to the other side, Israelis to Palestinians or Palestinians to, Jordan, uh, to uh, Israelis. This is a matter today of survival. And therefore, we're seeing that the green blue deal is receiving a lot of a, a lot of attention and and uh, 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 considerable support, um, uh, tremendous interest in uh, our respective governments in a water energy exchange. Um, for the first time, we're seeing real interest in the rehabilitation of the River Jordan and uh, conversations with our um, uh, ministries on. Indeed, uh, uh, incorporating uh, the regional aspects of uh, of the climate crisis into curriculum across our region, um, we think that the Biden administration uh, should adopt the Green Blue Deal. And as uh, former U.S. Ambassador Dan Shapiro had stated, when we launched the Green Blue Deal, this is a roadmap. You know, these are, are two clear issues. The, the Biden administration is committed to fight uh, the climate crisis. The Biden administration says it's committed to keep the two-state solution alive. Well, implementing the Green-Blue Deal does both. So we're, we're really hopeful that um, uh, Israel po you know, Policy Forum supporters um, will uh, access our website, learn and read uh, the Green-Blue Deal, and uh, adopt the, the, the call for action. We're calling on synagogues and churches and mosques to endorse the Green Blue Deal. We're calling on members of Congress um, uh, to endorse uh, uh, the Green Blue Deal. We are trying to create 
a coalition of the willing. We already have uh, the foreign minister of Finland that's publicly endorsed uh, the Green-Blue Deal and is, is calling on other foreign ministers to join. And here at the uh, 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 Glasgow Conference of the Parties, that's what we're doing at Equipeace. We're speaking um, uh, with heads of state, with foreign ministers. You know, today I, I spoke uh, to, the, to the Cypriots about um, joining um, uh, 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 the efforts of the Finns to uh, endorse the Green-Blue Deal. Um, uh, to support the government of Israel, the government of Jordan and the Palestinian Authority to move forward on implementing uh, these four pillars that I've just mentioned. So I'll just I'll just close this out by saying that I think Max and I learned a lot about this issue. Um, I think it's been really enlightening for us to see how, you know, different issues, particularly climate security and climate issues, impact the two-state solution and impact the work that we do every day. So it's really great to see our partners on the ground working in Israel and in Palestine and Jordan to uh, to, to shape shape the future of this issue. So thank you. It's a real pleasure. And, and when your um, your supporters come to the region, we offer tours, you know, sort of climate tours that, that that people can actually see for themselves how the climate crisis is impacting the region, but also uh, to educate themselves of the solutions. So. You know, there are not many issues in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict where you can speak to a little bit of optimism. This is one of them. Um, yeah. And it's mostly due to the fact that the skepticism on, on climate change is not, is, is not present in our part of the world. We're already experiencing this and, and people are worried. People are worried about their future and they're increasingly uh, understanding that uh, the only way that they're going to survive this climate crisis is to work together.